this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. So once a year, you go to the doctor, right? They take your blood pressure, maybe they prick your finger and they take a little blood and they give you a sense of your cholesterol level. Maybe if you go to one of those fancy healthcare facilities, they get you to run on a treadmill for a while, see how your heart's doing. You get a checkup. The same thing should be true of your business. When we look at your business through the Value Builder score, we're going to look at it through eight key drivers that acquirers care about. Whether you want to sell your business immediately or in 10, 20 years from now, these are the eight factors that business buyers care about. Knowing them now will help you maximize the value of your business going forward. Just go to valuebuilder.com and take the questionnaire. Have you ever read the book, Small Giants by Bo Burlingham? Great book. If you haven't, it's worth picking up. And my next guest, Tyler Tringas, is a small giant. He started a software company called Stormapper and bootstrapped it. Unlike so many other SaaS companies, decided that he was going to kind of uh, build it one step at a time and not go outside for capital. Uh, He built the business up and ultimately sold it and had a great exit. And his story is really refreshing. It's a different sort of approach on selling. And I'll let him tell the story. But listen out for his hiring criteria around asynchronous communication and how he looked for employees who could handle that level of sort of communication style. Um, He talks a lot about how to know when to sell. And in his case, that was a a tough trade-off because he had a a really exciting growing business that uh, would be more valuable next year and the year after that. But he made some some tough choices and, and get him to, you know, uh, he'll tell you that story in, in a little bit more detail. Uh, he also talks about radical transparency and is a sort of believer in being really transparent about your numbers. We talk a little bit about the subjectivity of SDE, seller's discretionary earnings, also referred to as SDI sometimes, seller's discretionary income. Uh, but we talk a little bit about how that's a subjective science and defining the difference between a strategic and a financial buyer. So lots of really good stuff in this conversation with Tyler Tringus. Tyler Tringus, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, John, thanks for having me. Yeah, loving. Look, I want to get into Stormapper because, if, first of all, if people haven't read your blog post, you know, Google Tyler Tringus Stormapper, and there's a whole uh, fantastically transparent blog post on the sale of this company. So please do check that out. Tell me about Stormapper. What what uh, what kind of business was this? So Stormapper, it, you know, when I describe it to people at first blush, they're they're sort of surprised that you can actually even build a business off of it. But but I swear it's a real thing. Um, Stormapper is is store locators as a service. So if you have a product and uh, it's being distributed in stores around the country, around the world, um, and you need to to be able to tell your customers where they can buy that product, um, you need a store locator. That's something that typically Google can't can't answer. Um, and you know, it's a sort of embeddable uh, product that you've seen on a lot of websites where you enter your address and you find a bunch of stores near you where you can buy that product. Um, we sort of productized that made it really easy for anybody to put it on their website and then layered on a bunch of cool sort of analytics where you could learn about um, learn information from folks who were doing that sort of very 
very high intent activity of saying, where can I buy your product? So if I have like like John's super spicy nacho chips and I sell them through all these kind of like small retail shops and health food stores, I could plug in the addresses for all these health food stores. And then when someone comes to my website, it would like basically pl- you know pull up a map and say, hey, you can get your chips at this location. That's exactly it. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. And so I'm assuming your customers were not the big giant, it wasn't Apple and Nike. It was the smaller businesses. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. It's small businesses. It was definitely, you hit the nail on the head. There was a lot of sort of food businesses because you often can't buy those online. They just go straight to distribution and something like, you know, a hundred Whole Foods in the New England area or something like that. And then also uh, a lot of these growing brands that started on, let's say Kickstarter, and then they built a Shopify and they got some sales there. And then they got distribution in a bunch of kind of random, you know, boutiques and, and targets and things like that. But it's not ubiquitous. It's not like, you know, you can go to any store and buy it. Right, right. What a cool business. So how did you charge for this? Uh, it was a typical sort of SaaS platform, so software as a service. Um, so there was a monthly fee with a couple of different plans um, for for sort of added features. Like for example, the the analytics would be a a premium feature that we charge a bit more for. And were you were you planning to scale this up into a, a giant company? Like, what was your vision for how big you were planning to make this? Uh, so I mean, it started a hundred percent as a kind of an experiment. I mean, at the time I was, I was working on another startup entirely, um, that wasn't, it wasn't going very well. Um, and so I was looking for, uh, ways to sort of extend my personal runway. So while I was still working on the startup, I was trying to make some money on the side that would be very sort of time efficient. And I was, um, I was consulting, I was doing sort of, um, basically just software development for Shopify clients and uh, kind of hit on this idea that a couple of them wanted this. And I thought, okay, I could probably productize this. I could make a little side business that would give me some more runway to keep working on uh, this other startup that I was working on in the, in the clean tech space. Um, and then the, the clean tech startup basically failed. And I had this this little product uh, that was kind of doing, it was doing like rent money. It was sort of doing, you know, $1,200, $1,500 a month in recurring revenue. Um, and that's when I sort of, I switched my um, focus to it full time there. Um, and the, the objective was always pretty much a lifestyle business. Uh, I really wanted to build something that um, would give me some measure of sort of financial freedom, um, would allow me to kind of reclaim my time to potentially work on other projects, uh, to learn about scaling a business and also just to travel. So I was really adamant that it had to be, um, you know, remote friendly, travel friendly, um, from the get go. Interesting because a lot of guys starting sort of SaaS businesses, software as a service businesses are trying to become the next Shopify, uh, you know, they want to get venture backed and, and, and kind of take on the world. Was that ever something you, contemplated? Well, I mean, I, I think I knew from the get go that, that, you know, store mapper was not going to be that kind of a business. And, um, it's something that I've sort of noticed in, in the market. Um, I guess starting probably around sort of five to seven years ago that, um, the kind of 
the the costs and the overhead and the fixed costs of starting a software business had fallen so low um, with some of the things like Amazon AWS and uh, Stripe for payment processing and stuff like that, that um, you really could be a sort of one man or one woman uh, SaaS business. And what you saw was much like StoreMapper, this whole kind of trend of micro SaaS businesses where people were actually able to build full-scale you know SaaS businesses um, with uh, one person or a very very small team and they could be profitable really early on and and turn into um, you know very sort of uh, uh, impressive basically what you would call lifestyle businesses but some of these could actually turn out to be pretty big and pretty profitable you reached I think a hundred thousand dollars a year in recurring revenue when you realized that your business didn't have an accelerator pedal. Can mm-hmm. you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, I think um, you know, when you have a business that is working, right? It's it's growing. Um, you're you know, you're you're you feel like you have some measure of product market fit. Um, there's this temptation to always think like, okay, well, you know, a burden hand is worth two in the bush. Like, you know, I, if I want to make more money or increase my wealth, uh, the best thing to do is to to look at ways to, to really grow this business and to change the trajectory of it. And uh, for, for whatever reason, um, I just had to realize that, um, you know, it was doing really well on an organic basis. We'd kind of tapped into a couple of growing trends, you know, so we were um, we were in the app stores of a couple of big platforms like Shopify that were growing. Um, you know, there were more and more businesses like this kind of every day, but it just wasn't enough of a burning need to, uh, to, to be something that I could really put salespeople behind or put paid customer acquisition behind. And it just kind of chugged along. It more or less, you know, had fairly linear growth for the five years that I operated the business. And what was the growth rate for the last, say, year before you sold it? Um, I think yeah, I'd have to look up the numbers. Um, but I would say it was something on the order of about 30% a year. Got it. And how big did you get the business before you decided to sell it? So I, I need to pull up the numbers and see what the last, uh, the last revenue line was, but, um, we were doing, I think around, around 40 something thousand, uh, dollars in monthly recurring revenue. Um, Actually, a bit more closer to fifty, um, and uh, and it was it was a team of five people. Uh, they were all completely distributed around the world, hmm. and it was uh, fairly profitable. Um, when you say fairly profitable, so you're paying the salaries of these five people. I mean, roughly, um, what were the other expenses? Can give us a sense of how kind of profitable it was. There were almost no other expenses. So it was uh, a totally distributed team. So everyone was remote. We had no office space, um, really no overhead of any kind. Um, Essentially, when you looked down the expense list, it was the team. And then it was a collection of other kind of, you know, software as a service or platform costs, things like hosting uh, or our, uh, you know, help desk support software and, um, different items like that. So it was extremely uh, lean operation. It sounds it for sure. Now I can hear a little bit of background noise. Tell people, do you mind telling people where you are? Because we, before I hit record, you you shared with me, because I think it'd be cool for people to know where you are right now. 
Well, well, right now um, I'm in I'm in Maryland visiting my wife's family. <laughs> and we're here for Thanksgiving, but um, we've flown in for for the last two weeks to visit family from uh, from Rio de Janeiro. So um, my wife works for the State Department, and she's posted to the consulate down there. And um, we've been sort of traveling and and going all over the world while while I was able to to run Stormapper and and now my other projects um, remotely. Yeah. So clearly, you'd set this thing up to be independent of you personally, or at least geography. Yeah, location independence was was a big uh, priority for me going into to building Stormapper. I've got to ask before we get into the sale, how what's the secret to managing remote employees? I think um, one thing is that you you want to think about that uh, first and foremost in almost every single decision. So for example, if you're going to be fully remote, you're going to be in different time zones, you're going to need to be very good at asynchronous communication, right? So, so sort of, you know, putting some sort of uh, question or where you're stuck on a problem out there for someone else on your team where you can't get instant feedback. So one of the things that I would do is um, I would actually integrate that into the hiring process. So usually when you hire someone, the first thing you want to do is, you know, even if they're remote, get on a Skype, face-to-face, interview them, talk things through, but actually we would do the entire interview process um, over text, right? Because you want to make sure that people are very good writers. You want to make sure that um, they have the capacity to, uh, if they get stuck on one problem, to sort of put that aside for a little bit, move on to a different problem because they don't have you, they can't walk over and tap you on the shoulder and and get some help to to move forward with that thing. So there's there's a couple of sort of um, things that that really stand out, but in general, you want to just really constantly architect your business around um, not having that ability to to have that immediate communication. Um, so it filters down into everything like, you know, how we how we treated um, sort of uh, customer support protocols and making sure that um, we very rigorously documented my opinion on things so that every time they would ask me, you know, this customer wants a refund. Um, I actually would put down like this extremely sort of detailed flow chart that was like, you know, if it's less than $50 and they've been a customer for more than a year, like just refund it. You know, if it's in this range, it's your decision. If it's in, you know, and that kind of process uh, is really important when you're remote. It sounds, it's important when you're together too, but I guess it's double or triply important when you're remote because of the, the point of asynchronous communication. It has the effect of really amplifying a lot of stuff that is already kind of good practice for management. Yeah, for sure. So you get this business up to 50 grand uh, a month in recurring revenue. So that's annualizing at about $600,000 in recurring revenue. Is that about right? Yes. I think. If I'm doing the math, um, what makes you want to? What made you want to sell? Um, <laughs> I mean, it was a couple of reasons. I think um, at one point, you know, it's funny. I was reading there's a there's a really short book about the the founding of Twitter, and I, I may get this anecdote wrong, but but basically, uh, it's when the the two Twitter founders, Biz and Ev, are working on um, a podcast startup, and they they. Uh, one of them turns to the other one and says, if we get this right, we're going to be the king of podcasts. And the other one looks back and says, do we want to be the kings of podcasts? And they say, actually, no, we don't want to be the kings of podcasts. 
podcasts, you know, <laughs> it sounds funny now because podcasts are like, you know, all the rage, but, <laughs> but the idea was sort of genuinely asking yourself, like, you know, if, if this fully succeeds and you do the best that you can at it, is that an outcome that you really want? And, and I kind of thought, well, I don't really want to be the king of store locators. You know? <laughs> I, I kind of want to. On your epitaph, I, on your on your tombstone, there you are. Exactly. Oh, you know, I, he invented store map. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, I was very proud of it. I was proud of the team. I was proud of the product. I was proud of having you know happy employees and happy customers. I was proud of being able to be like radically transparent about the process and that folks were learning from it. Um, but at the end of the day, I knew that I wanted to sort of level up and and try something more ambitious. And so I decided to, rather than just kind of jump into that and sell the business without any idea of what I was going to do, I started to, I started this process of sort of reclaiming um, my time. So I, I went from optimizing for growing the business to keeping the business growing while getting more and more of my time back, um, which which also happens to be a, a very good practice if you want to sell the business because you can start to manage yourself out of the business. But but I, I decided to use that, that time to try to figure out what I wanted to do next. And um, I spent about a year really looking at um, you know, widely exploring other things that I could do. Um, and then eventually sort of hit on a couple of things that I knew that I wanted to explore and I wanted to get the, the sort of financial freedom and the attention freedom, um, of, of selling the business to, to focus on those things. Gosh, you know, a lot of people I think will empathize with that who are running, um, successful businesses that are kind of chugging along. In your case, you were doing more than chugging along. You're growing at 30% top line a year. Um, but wouldn't have the courage to pull the trigger. Like this is a pretty good deal. And I could ride this out for the next 20 years. How did you, did you have any of those sort of second, did you second guess yourself at all? And how did you overcome that? If you did Yeah. I'm, so I think there's two answers to that question. And I think the first one is, um, was that process of breaking it up into into smaller pieces, right? So I think when some people are sitting there running a business and they think about everything all at once, which is like, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna go through the process of selling this business, sell the business, figure out what to do with the money, figure out what I'll do next, you know, and, and they kind of think about that whole decision all at once as one big chunk that they're gonna bite off, and um, and and I did that and it was pretty terrifying. And so I decided to to chop it up and I said, okay, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna reclaim, you know, 20, 25, 30 hours per week. And first I'm gonna make that a goal. And then I'm gonna use that time pretty much open-endedly to sort of figure out what I'm gonna do next. And I I really experimented very widely. You know, I, I was just harassing all of my smart friends with ideas <laughs> after ideas, you know, just say, hey, I, I could do this, I could do this until something, or, or actually in, in my case, it was a couple of things um, sort of clicked and felt like, okay, that's, that's what I wanna do. Um, and then, but the second one is just acknowledging that, you know, particularly if you have, let's say a, profitable SaaS business that grows through organic customer acquisition, um, you have to understand that the, the math never makes sense, right? SaaS businesses are, are sort of wonderfully sellable assets. So when you look at it and you say, well, should I sell this business now or should I hold it for another six months, keep the profits and then sell it for probably more than I could sell it now, you'll always conclude financially that it makes sense to hold the business. Um, but you kind of have to acknowledge that 
that's never going to change, right? So you just have to decide that you're going to sell it for what fundamentally is not a financial decision. Fascinating. Okay. So you, you intellectually get your head around selling. What was your next step? Practically, did you hire a broker? Did you, like, how did you kind of get some interest in, in selling? Um, getting interest in, from buyers was actually one thing where, um, I didn't ever have a problem with that because um, very early on in the process of, of running Store Mapper, I kind of made the decision to be um, radically transparent. I was inspired by um, a couple of founders, like the founders of um, of Buffer uh, and Bear Metrics, and a couple of other businesses that were publishing kind of all of their financial metrics uh, in public as they talked about you know, the challenges and the lessons they've learned from growing their business. And um, there was something really appealing about that. I think it, you know, to some extent, like if you want to be helpful and write about how to build a business, um, you know, you're, you're sort of, you're in the subcategory of basically how to make money, right. And, and writing about how to make money online is just extremely fraught to me. And, um, you know, it was very hard to, to navigate the sort of imposter syndromes and things like that. So I felt like if I was transparent, um, then folks could know, well, you know, this is exactly how much credit to give this guy, right? Not too much or too little, right? He has built something, but he hasn't built a multi-million dollar business. Um, and, uh, it, it, but a sort of upshot of being transparent and writing in that way and, and, and publishing the numbers was that I was fairly constantly getting inbound interest from potential buyers. A lot of that was, was folks just kind of wasting my time or looking for kind of really opportunistically looking for a fire sale deal. But um, there was a pretty steady stream of folks inquiring, um, you know, hey, I, I'd like to buy your business. Um, so go ahead. How did you know they were tire kickers? Like, how did you discern between the tire kickers that are wasting your time and, and, the, and the legitimate buyers? Uh, <laughs> at first, I didn't. <laughs> so, I mean, I actually had conversations to potentially sell StoreMapper uh, I think for around $60,000 was a conversation that we actually had a discussion around when it was, you know, when it was doing something like, uh, you know, $15,000 a year, um, someone reached out and this is when I was still running another startup on the side. So I was actually genuinely considering it. Um, and so I, I had, uh, probably four or five people reach out to me then. And I, I went through a you know, just a kind of excruciating process of talking to them and realizing that, you know, none of them were serious. Um, and over time, I kind of realized, okay, I need to be better about this, but I would still take the call every now and then just to kind of get the experience of talking with them, realizing, you know, what were the follow-up questions of people who are serious versus people who are not, um, you know, what questions should I ask to really quickly figure out, you know, if they were, if they were remotely serious, right. So, you know, so, so if, if you had a founder beside you right now and you were, and, and they were like, how do I know Tyler, if they're serious, like what question or questions would you say they should ask the potential buyer to quickly uh, filter out the, the serious folks? Um, that's a good question. I think, um, 
I don't have any any sort of silver bullets for it. Um, I definitely frequently would ask them, you know, like we would just start talking about multiples right away um, and see if if they, you know, were were in a range that that made sense. Um, I think I would start pressing them for an LOI pretty soon, you know, just start talking about the idea of like signing documents. And you often find that, that folks start to shy away immediately. Uh, LOI, of course, stands for serious. letter of intent. So folks know what that acronym stands for, letter of intent, non-binding usually. Exactly. Even though it's yeah. completely non-binding, I found that um, folks who are not serious would often, um, you know, shy away uh, from, from that process um, of any sort of documentation with signatures on it. You talk about multiples. I mean, what did you think was a fair, like, I mean, as you think about sort of micro SaaS companies, what sort of multiple range are you, were you thinking was sort of market rate at the time? I mean, at the time that I was considering selling the business, which was, I, so I sold Stormapper around a year and a half ago and started the process of considering that about six months before that. So, so about two years ago, um, the range was pretty solidly around three to five times um, what what they call sort of seller discretionary earnings, which is kind of a um, a proxy for for how profitable your business is, but taking into account the fact that these are uh, often basically sole proprietorships or LLCs, where you know f- folks are are adding back in a lot of uh, discretionary spending that they don't necessarily have to transfer to the to the buyer. Um, so so, but imagine that to be a rough proxy for for how profitable your business is. Um, you know the the range of uh, financial buyers um, was sort of three to five times the annualized version of that. Um, and, and that was pretty well known at around that time, I would say around three years ago, there were a couple of um, brokers specifically targeting kind of, you know, SaaS businesses in this range. And they were doing a very good job of, of uh, adding some, some sort of price transparency to the market there. Got it. So there was a, a rough consensus in the market of the three to five times SDE was reasonable for a kind of a micro SaaS business, sort of less than a million in, in annual recurring revenue. Yeah. Got it. Got it. And so that's what you thought it was worth. Interesting. You kind of snickered to yourself. I don't know if you noticed, but when you're talking about the 15K, the guy who was offering you 60, that was kind of four times SDE at the time. Or no, I guess it was full time <laughs> revenue. It was it was not a bad offer in the in the grand scheme of things. No, no, it was it was a pretty good offer. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm glad I didn't take it. Obviously, For sure. But, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So okay, so you've got a sense of what what it's worth, uh, or sort of at least roughly in your mind, and and what was the next step? So you had these inbound offers. Did 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 you sort of proactively start to play one off the other? Did you get a, a bit of an auction going? Like, how did you take the next step? Yeah, I mean, so I, I definitely decided to run it as a process. So one of the things that I just kind of knew um, I, that I wanted to sort of work backwards from, and, and you know, I know this is your podcast, so I don't mean to, to embarrass you, but actually your book was tremendously helpful for this process. <laughs> and just in terms of, and just in terms of giving me the ability to, to look around the corners and to sort of know what the steps in the process were and to, then to think backwards from okay here's where i am you know now i need to to work backwards from all of those steps and make sure that i end up in a good position here rather than just sort of taking one step at a time and saying okay what do i do now you know getting that whole view of the field was was tremendously helpful 
And, um, and so I, I knew that I needed to get multiple serious buyers who had done their due diligence sort of simultaneously to that phase where they were interested, they'd done all the due diligence, they'd done the follow-up and they were all ready to buy. You know, I, I didn't want to be dependent on just one. And so I really ran it as a, as a funnel where, where I wanted to, you know, fill the top of the funnel as much as possible and then move them along through, you know, initial discussions and understanding the numbers and having the follow-up call and all and LOIs and all that. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of put together a little spreadsheet. I went back through anyone who'd ever reached out to me uh, about buying the business that seemed um, serious. Um, and, uh, and, and I will say that, you know, I, it wasn't a hundred percent proactive on my part in, in the sense of, you know, I completely had decided like, now I will start selling the business. Um, there was actually a little bit of serendipity where, um, I was really leaning towards it. And then I got two in inbound emails from, from, you know, quite serious, quite capable buyers, um, that, that also kind of met the, the final test, which is that I wanted to make sure that they would keep the product, um, going strong and that they would be good managers and, and create a good opportunity for my employees. And th those two seemed like very strong, you know, uh, potential buyers. And they just kind of out of, out of nowhere during this rough few month period where I was getting pretty serious about selling, they came in and I, oh, okay, maybe I should really do this. And then I went to a conference of software entrepreneurs. And, uh, while I was there, I met two more people who were also, you know, pretty serious buyers. You know, they talked about store mapper and they could see the numbers and, um, and they also were pretty interested. So I had this kind of What was the name of the conference? Uh, microconf it's in uh, Vegas every year and it's um, yeah it's for sort of um, exactly this target market of kind of uh, bootstrapper software entrepreneurs fantastic so you're you're at this trade show at this conference you meet a couple so you've got what seems to be four or five serious buyers at, at that point yes exactly yeah great what was the next step uh, so, so basically after that conference, when I had those two more folks reach out and say, look, you know, I, I'd also be very interested. Then I said, okay, I'm going to run a process. So I was just, um, you know, moving a lot of those guys through the funnel. I think there was basically only maybe one more, um, who came from, you know, who sort of reached out previously that, that, you know, kind of bit. So I had about five folks who were, um, quite interested and, um, it really expedited the process a lot that all of our, you know, not all, but most of our financial metrics were public. It was literally a live dashboard that you could go and see our, our MRR, our MRR growth rate, our churn rate, our, you know, um, uh, yeah, you basically all of that. Sort of like a Stripe dashboard or what, how did they, what were you publishing there? Yeah, there's, there's a, a company called Bear Metrics um, and they, uh, this was, well, I guess one of their kind of marketing tactics was, was to, to join the radical transparency movement. And they have a, um, yeah, like one click kind of Stripe analytics where it shows you all of that, that information. And they just reached out and they said, Hey, you know, you can make this public if you want. Um, and so they would anonymize all the like customer information. Um, but you could, I literally had a live public dashboard, like a URL that I could point people to, to see, um, all those, those basic metrics. Wow. That, that is incredibly transparent. So what was, so that included MRR growth, uh, LTV, I'm assuming. Yes. Churn rates. What did it not include? What were you not publishing that you had to share with these, these three to five buyers that were interested? 
so all of those were basically top line numbers, right? And so ultimately you need to get to profit and, and SDE. So, so that was the, the main, you know, kind of chunk of numbers that they needed to know was what were our expenses? Um, you know, what was the trajectory of those expenses? What did the kind of cost model look like? And what was the, you know, the, the current run rate and forecast for um, actual, you know, SDE or profit? So did you go through the process of of kind of normalizing um, your profitability or uh, you know adjusting as the m a community likes to say so adjusting your 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 p l so that you were showing your profitability in the most kind of favorable light to a potential buyer um I don't mean that in an IRS is gonna come after you I don't I don't mean favorable yeah. light as in as in you were trying to hide stuff I mean you know pulling out personal expenses and just kind of showing the true SDE of the company Yes, exactly. Yeah, no, I mean, you really go through, you know, your your bookkeeping and, and flag items as, I mean, the way that I looked at it, which is the, the sort of definition that um, of, of SDE is, you know, what of these expenses are actually going to be transferred to the buyer, right? So, you know, to the extent that you're putting you know, 50% of your, of your cell phone bill in there, um, you know, that's not going to go to the buyer, right? So going ahead and, and kind of, you know, doing your bookkeeping as one layer, and then your sort of model on top of that for SDE, which, you know, kind of says, okay, what, what of this is going to go to the buyer? Um, and then also, you know, kind of forecasting that. And, and one thing that I think is very interesting is um, that it's still very important to uh, clearly define some of these terms, right? Because, um, you know, there's this sort of false sense of security where you say, okay, oh, yeah, yeah, we're talking about SDE, that blah, 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 you know, that SDE is fine. And, and uh, we want to buy it for, you know, uh, this multiple of SDE. And you feel like you're speaking the same language with a potential buyer. Um, but actually there's still a considerable amount of nuance, even within this, you know, arcane term that's entirely created for, for sort of selling SaaS businesses, um, which is, you know, are we talking about, trailing 12 months as the basis for SDE. Are we talking about, uh, you know, the, the uh, future forecasted 12 months or um, which was what, what I settled on? Are we talking about essentially an annualized version of your current run rate? Right. So because if you have, let's say, monthly recurring revenue and you're growing faster than you're churning and it's just going up every single month, um, you know, trailing 12 months can actually, uh, you know, significantly sort of uh, hurt your valuation because you're you're getting sort of penalized for for your much lower MRR back in January of last year, um, whereas it's very unlikely that you're going to go back down to that level. Um, so it was really important to to sort of um, clearly stake out, you know, what exactly are you talking about when you have these discussions? Such an important point. And 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 for for folks listening, it's it's so critical because you could agree on a multiple, but if you don't know what the multiple is or in 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 what Tyler's talking about in terms of driving a specific definition of SDE as an example, you're absolutely right. It can be, uh, it can, there can be a lot of change or a lot of wiggle room. There's actually, um, you know, a lot of buyers will look at a company and they'll have a, uh, you know, a, a mandate to say like, we're not going to spend more than five times SDE on a company. And, and they raise money from potential investors under that auspices. They, they go out and say, look, we're, you know, we're value investors and we're not going to, you know, buy a company for less, any more than five 
five times STE. So they might have a hard limit on what they can spend. Um, but the subject or the way one can boost its multiple, the ultimate sale prices is to, to focus more on the, in this case, what is the SDE and, and uh, make it as favorable as you can by looking at, for example, forward looking or, or at least annualized as opposed to trailing if you're in a growing business like you were. Fantastic. So you've got these buyers where you're sharing some of the, the, the profitability. At what point did you push? Did you push them for a letter of intent? Uh, yeah, pretty quickly, I think. Like I said, because so much of the of you know the business was public, both the actual metrics and you know, I'd been blogging these these sort of very lengthy posts about, you know, what was going on in our strategy and what challenges we were facing. And I could just sort of hand them and say, look, sit down for 45 minutes and re- read these blog posts and then look at these numbers and and basically, you know, give them a little addendum of of profitability. And I, I thought it was perfectly fair to say, look, the next step is an LOI with a number on it. Um, you know, there wasn't a lot more uh, due diligence that, that could be sort of justified. Um, so yeah, so I ended up getting uh, three LOIs uh, through that process. Fantastic. And what was the what was the range uh, between the lowest and the highest in terms of? We don't. I know you can't talk about the specific number, but could you share like? the range of LOIs, were they, were they roughly in the same ballpark or was one, you know, dramatically bigger? Can you give us a sense? They were all pretty similar, to be honest. I, I, I didn't um, really choose the final buyer based on um, paying the, the highest amount. Um, they were all very, very close. Um, you know, basically, the, the business that I built uh, to a financial buyer, um, as I say, look, you know, it wasn't ever going to be a rocket ship, um, but as a financial asset, it was extremely strong and had super, super low churn, a really good team with incredibly well-documented processes. I was working, you know, less than 10 hours a week on it. Um, you know, MRR was completely organic. There was no paid acquisition or, or any sort of um, cost to growth or anything like that. And so I knew what I had was, was a very strong financial asset. And so I, you know, set kind of clear expectations to everyone in the process that, you know, I understand you're a financial buyer, you're going to be within this window, but you need to be at the very top of that window um, for us to do a deal. Were you at all curious about whether there was a strategic buyer out there? I mean, I I couldn't even conceive of one, really. <laughs> I mean, I did think about it quite a lot, obviously, because um, I had sort of thought about the idea of moving on from the business for for over a year. Um, and they're just, you know, I, I did um, open the conversation with, um, there were a couple of businesses that were sort of um, almost like holding companies of, of Shopify apps or of e-commerce apps. And they would have a sort of portfolio of, of a dozen or more that were very kind of had all these tight synergies and stuff like that. And, and I approached a couple of them um, just kind of saying, Hey, you know, are you interested in having a discussion? And um, you know, they, I guess, you know, none of them kind of uh, uh, took the bait. Um, And so I, yeah, I, I just never found, I couldn't even think of, of a strategic buyer for it that would actually genuinely need a uh, storm mapper. And then, you know, one of the things I've realized after the fact is that, um, you know, strategic exits, I feel like, you know, I, 
obviously a strategic exit is great in the sense of it, it gives you a, a much higher multiple than than you could otherwise command but also you're it's really very far out of your control right in terms of you know that that there is this potential sort of you know competitor or incumbent or someone who finds a good fit that they're motivated and willing to pay and on your timeline um i i, I really actually i think enjoyed the process of um selling to financial buyers a lot more because I really knew what I was getting into, um, you know, and I was able to really control the process all the way through. Tell me about the deal terms that were non-financial, so un- unrelated to the actual sale price. Things like, you know, the expectations the buyers had of you personally to stay on. Uh, what what did that look like ac- across the three offers? They were all almost identical. Um, it was essentially uh, a six-month. Um, know kind of not even really an earn out just a transition period um and and a, a you know small-ish piece of the total sale price that was sort of contingent on my staying through the transition period and other than that it was pretty pretty light on um on additional terms i think um because i uh, had done a pretty good job of extricating myself from the business there, there really wasn't much of a discussion around a sort of long-term earn out or anything like that how did you how did you ultimately select SureSwift Capital? What was it that tipped their offer across the finish line? Yeah, I mean SureSwift Capital, that was their whole business. They were essentially buying operating businesses um, like mine and um, you know essentially just rolling them up and and running them. Um, and uh, I was able to actually coincidentally um, uh, an, a fellow entrepreneur and founder that I, I knew fairly well um, had sold the business to them recently. And so it was, it was funny because I I asked the guys at SureSwift, actually all of the the ones that I was seriously considering that had done a deal before, I said, hey, look, I want to talk to um, you know the founders of of deals that you've closed before because I want to get some background info from them about what the what the experience was like. And um, when the SureSwift guys gave me a list of a couple of folks to reach out to, one of them was was this guy Moritz Moritz Dausiger, uh, who who built a, a another kind of similar micro SaaS business called Mail Parser. And I knew him pretty well, so so it was really good to actually be able to to call him up and ask him what his experience was like. And, and what did he like, say? Oh. He said it was great. He said, you know, it was it was exactly as expected. There were no surprises after the deal closed. Um, and and he, you know, sort of thoroughly enjoyed working with them in the transition period. His employees were happy and thriving. Um, and, and that really sort of sealed the deal for me. I said, OK, I'm going I'm going with these guys because I had some great employees that, you know, I wanted to make sure um, they would have uh, some exciting opportunities um, after the acquisition. And and actually, that's that's come to pass. So um, so uh, one of our employees who she started out uh, as the sort of tier one support, just doing the, the most sort of basic help desk stuff uh, is now basically running the entire product. Um, so that's really exciting. That's great. Fantastic. Yeah. One of the things that I, I, I kind of took note in your blog post is that eventually, you know, in the sale, you moved away from multiples of SDE and started talking about the number. Mm. And I thought that was a really fascinating point because you can get pretty marred into uh, the weeds about the definition of SDEs as we were talking about before. And and you chose at some point to pull up and say, okay, let's stop talking about SDE multiples. Let's just talk about the number. 
Yeah, I mean, ultimately, right, a, a, a transaction happens when a buyer and a seller agree on a price, right? And and sometimes I feel like um, the SDE discussion, while it's an incredibly sort of useful lens through which to start the conversation, um, there you know, you just kind of, because it is this sort of formula, right? It's this combination of, you know, this numerator of, you know, what are we including? What expenses are in there? Are we talking about, you know, kind of trailing 12 months, a current snapshot, et cetera? You know, are we talking about, um, you know, the, I mean, in this case, it took about three months for the sale to close. And at that point, my SDE was going up. You know? I mean, we were, we were growing, a, you know, a couple percentage points a month. And so I was like, okay, uh, are, you know, are we locking in this, this multiple now? What happens if it takes another 60 days to close? Do I keep the, you know, the extra amount? And, and so it just started to get really confusing once you're getting down to the final kind of negotiations between uh, the buyers. And, and uh, I just found it a lot simpler just to kind of pull up and say, okay, let's talk about just actual numbers. And that's it. That's all we're going to discuss. And you said at one point, I believe, you know, if we close in X number of days, the price is Y. But if you drag due diligence out for five months, the price goes up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that's fair. You know, I think um, particularly if you have a business like this, that's just growing as as the days go by. You know, I, I don't think there's any malicious intent on the part of buyers to do this, but they, they certainly, you know, feel like they give themselves a substantial amount of wiggle room, right. To sort of say, to, to make, you know, say, yeah, we'll pay this multiple of SDE at the start of the process and then leave as an open question, you know, what happens if this takes four months and actually the business is worth substantially more in the interim. Did you guys agree at the LOI stage on a number? Uh, yes. And how long did diligence take? It was very quick. And, and I sort of essentially, like you said, I mean, I, I made it clear that I wanted it to be, you know, quite fast because I was incredibly transparent and there wasn't a lot to really dig into, to be honest. Um, and so I think I, I, I have to remember the exact date, but I mean, it was, it was probably, I know it was um, about five months from from the conference where I met these, these last two buyers who entered the process to the actual transaction concluding. Wow. That's fantastic. Good yeah. for you. It sounds like a dream exit. I'd be curious as you look back on the whole thing from the kind of conference to today, what might you do if there's one thing that you might do differently? What, what would you say that might be? You know, I think, um, I mean, you say it sounds like a dream exit. It, it was a dream exit in terms of it was incredibly smooth. Um, it happened more or less exactly like I expected it to. Um, I mean, uh, literally when I was describing it to my um, then girlfriend, now wife, and I said, hey, you know, I'm kind of thinking about selling the business. If I sold it, I think it would look like, you know, roughly this. Um, and that was about a year and a half before I sold the business. And when I sold the business, it turned out to be pretty much that. Um, and and I, I, I did it that way because, you know, it, it's a big decision. I wanted to extract as much risk out of the process as I could. Um, 
you know, I guess if I were to do something differently, I would maybe take a bit more risk. <laughs> you know, I would push a little bit harder. I would maybe, you know, push until one of the deals actually blew up or something, you know, just to try and extract a, a bit more value out of the sale. Because at the end of the day, it's, you know, I like telling this story because it's, it's fundamentally kind of, um, I describe it as boring, but I mean, it's very repeatable. You know, it's something that basically anyone with a, um, profitable business can, can replicate. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't think I would do much differently with the same goals. Um, but you know, maybe the next time around I might, um, I might get a bit more aggressive. Such a good point. And, and, and it's one that, you never know, right? Like I think I heard somewhere, uh, Price Waterhouse I think did a study that that revealed seventy five percent of business owners regret the decision to exit a year after. And I think a lot of that is you you never know if there was another turn of multiple if you'd pushed even harder. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. like no one knows, right? It's, yeah, you can never A B test it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's such a it's such a, a sort of a a cliffhanger that you never find out the answer to. Um, any regrets uh, at the, at the end of the day now? I mean, would you follow to the 75% of, of owners who re- regret their sale? No, definitely not. I, I, I definitely don't regret it at all. And I think that really boils down to um, having a, a solid understanding of, of what you wanted to do next. And mm-hmm. um, you know, specifically what, the way that the sale would sort of let you kind of level up your life and enable you to do those things that you couldn't have done, um, pre-sale and, and not just about, and not just with regards to the, the actual liquidity, but also I think the just kind of, um, bandwidth to be able to genuinely throw your full self into something new is still really hard, no matter how much you sort of extricate yourself from, uh, from the business. Um, I definitely don't regret it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it sounds like a, again, it sounds like a great exit. One of the things that uh, we talked about before we hit record was this notion. I, I think it's Warren Buffett who talks about the fact that he's going to give his kids enough money to do anything, but not enough to do nothing, or something like that. I may be getting the the the, uh, the description wrong, but um, but maybe talk about that in in your context. Is, is that do you feel? Is there something in that 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 you relate to that idea? Uh, you, you talk about leveling up your life. Maybe just describe what that means for you. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, if I was to sort of manufacture regret, right, it would be that, um, you know, there may have been a scenario where I ran Storm Rapper for another three to five years and generated an exit that was genuinely sail off into the sunset, never work again. Um, my exit was, was sort of much closer to, um, exactly what you described. It was sort of enough that, um, really anything that I wanted to do was on the table. Um, but not so much that I, you know, could essentially retire. Um, and I'm okay with that. I think one of the things is that, you know, I'm, I'm right now 33. Um, I kind of feel like these are some of the most productive, um, or at least sort of, uh, years that I should be putting in quite a lot of, of risk and really shooting for the moon. Um, so, so I'm sort of, happy to, to, to not be sort of coasting with storm mapper through those years. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it's, it's been, uh, really interesting to sort of now 
have that exit uh, and have that time. Uh, I was able to take a year and I really did an experiment where I said, what would I do um, with where, where money is like genuinely not a motivator at all. I ended up uh, working with um, a couple of interesting projects, uh, a sort of uh, photojournalism online uh, magazine called uh, Maptia and uh, joined that team and, and helped them uh, build out that um that just sort of meaningful storytelling platform that, you know, frankly is not a, not a great business. And then I, you know, I worked with, um, uh, with a nonprofit doing ocean conservation work in, in, um, in the Vancouver area. And so I was able to really, um, to, to, to do that life experiment to say, look, money is not motivating me at all. Um, so, so let's, let's experience that. Um, and then, uh, also, you know, the, the, the actual, from the, from the capital side of things, um, you know, it did enable me to, to launch, um, my next project, which is, um, basically, a, a fund for investing in, in businesses like store mapper. So, uh, for me, um, the, the process of, of generating the, the kind of, uh, the, the capital that I needed to get started with Stormapper and my other ventures was, was pretty painful. I ended up, um, racking up a, a pretty huge amount of, of credit card debt. I like to say that kind of Visa and Amex were my, were my angel investors in Stormapper. Um, and, uh, and, and it's always been a problem that I kind of wanted to solve was to be able to create a, a financing structure for early stage founders that wanted to build a business like this. Um, and the sale of Stormapper was, was, you know, basically the, the, the catalyst that gave me the capital to be able to sort of seed that, that fund. Um, awesome. Yeah. Love it. And where, where can people reach out and say hi on, on, on uh, social media? Is there a website you want to pe- point people to? Yeah. The, the best place is Twitter. So I'm at Tyler Tringus, uh, on Twitter. Um, if you want to read about, uh, store mapper and, and, uh, in particular, the, the sort of novella about selling the business, uh, that's tylertringus.com. And uh, yeah, those are where you can find me. Tyler Trigus, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.